You are listening to episode 225 of the Modern Drummer Podcast with Mike and Mike. This episode is brought to you by Dream Symbols. Dream just recently released a set of Dark Matter Eclipse models. If you remember a couple years ago, they put out the 21-inch Dark Matter Eclipse ride, which is a half-lathe ride symbol that gives you two sonically unique playing surfaces. The unlathe portion in these towards the center gives you a drier, more articulate sound, and then you get a washier, more complex sound when you get out towards the edge, which is lathe. So they took that concept, applied it to a set of 15-inch hi-hats, as well as 17-inch and 19-inch crashes, and a 23-inch ride. So if you go over to Dream's Instagram page, probably on their YouTube channel by now, they just released a demo with artist Phil Hawkins. Um, he is he, he plays some tunes. He talks about the symbols. So go check those out. Again, this is the new Eclipse series, 15-inch hi-hat, 17-19-inch crash, 23-inch ride, as well as the original 21-inch ride. Very versatile. You can get uh, clear articulate sounds as well as washy sounds. I think it's going to be very popular with a lot of artists. So check them out. Thanks, Dream, and let's get the show going. Episode 225. What is up, everybody? Hope you guys are doing absolutely wonderful. After Mike and I get all caught up today, we will be talking education and we'll be discussing the hybrid rudiment known as the Herta. Our featured artist this time is Daryl Lilman Howell. In our gear review section, we'll be checking out some new crashes from Sabian from the HHX Complex series. After that, we'll answer a bunch of your listener questions, and as always, we'll give you our picks of the week. So let's get started. Thank God. That was epic. One day. What, one day was epic. <laughs> the intro music was pretty epic. What do you think of that? The intro, the music? intro music was very epic. That's our, our new intro music for 2020. So just to make it official, we now have intro music, and we will definitely be using your guys' submissions for our outro music. So please keep sending in those submissions. Now, you know what? Maybe since we can't ever make a recorded version of our pre-talk, mm. maybe we just stream our pre-talk live. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah, cuz it was a it was a biscuit. This was whew, I felt like it was a therapy session. Oh. We got some stuff out. All right. But now we're now now and that and that's how we can start this podcast is because now we're positive, we're ready to rock. We've got things to talk about. How are you doing? How's the weather there? Uh gosh, man, we haven't talked about Let me look out the window. So this is how bipolar it's here on the East Coast. Anyone listening who can who can relate? It's like 20 degrees today, yesterday, tomorrow, and Saturday it's going to be like 65 degrees. Whoa. I'm kind of expecting the earth to just open up and swallow us all at that point. <laughs> By the way, now you know what the beginning of the podcast sounds like before we start recording. <laughs> it's just Mike and I talking about it's all going down. Oh, man. Well, uh, I, I, I'm sorry. You can. Yeah. Uh, well, well, you'll be in sunny California next week. That's, yeah. Most importantly, it's the chaos before the chaos of trying to make sure everything is prepared for NAM. Um, I don't know if this is a strategy or, or just tradition, but I feel like everyone tries to lock you into a formal meeting that ends up making the whole show impossible. I don't know if you have that. You probably don't because you have your endorsers to deal with, but. I get all the time, yeah. like, can we lock in a time? Can we lock in a time? And I, and I understand that, but if I give you a half hour, it's just, it's insane. It's absolutely insane to try to do this show by foot. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, NAM is an actual job for you. It's probably what people don't realize when they see you in the evening is they don't realize you just had a full day of the most hectic work ever. Yeah. So it's <laughs> you didn't have the same day we had as drummer nerds just walking around and being like, oh, wow. Yeah. Always. There's Vinny trying out a snare drum. I always get the, hey, see anything cool? I feel like saying, no, none of it's cool. Go, go home. <laughs> <laughs> Leave now. <laughs> <laughs> no, none of it's cool. Oh, I love it. I love it. Yeah, That's well, a jaded fifteen-year um, veteran in the drum industry speaking right there. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. I my my time is pretty chill. Although there's a good chance you and I will actually be together yes. at a booth. Let me see if I've got a confirmation. If not, we're going to announce it anyway. Uh oh, I've got. Okay, here we go. So you and I will be meeting up at the Big Fat Snare Drum booth on Friday, whatever that date is, at one p.m. Nice. Friday, 1 p.m. of NAM. we will be at the Big Fat Snare Drum booth. So if you want to come hang out there, well, I don't know what we're going to be doing other than hanging out, maybe playing some weird-sounding stuff, but that's 1 o'clock on Friday. Oh, my gosh. You and me playing drums. We've never played drums together once. (laughs) No. (laughs) That is crazy. That is crazy. I've never even been near you while both of us had sticks in our hands. Yeah. But, you know, I can say that probably about 99% of the drummers in the world because it's a one Can you say that about 99% of the drummers in the world that you have an hourly conversation (laughs) with every week? That you've had 200 and something hours of conversation? Uh, We we did play tiny little bit of drums when I visited your facility 35 years ago. Oh, that's right. Yeah, but we I mean, we didn't throw heat. No, because it's NAM. I'm coming for you, Dawson. (laughs) (laughs) With a big fat snare drum. I was going to say, you can't really do it with your chops would sound like. (laughs) Be a big cow moo. Uh, Well, that's awesome. Yeah. So hopefully uh, we will bump into a lot of you guys at NAM. It's always fun to hang. And if you've never been to NAM before, just know that it's it's honestly chaotic. So sending us DMs or whatever of like, hey, can we hang out? All we can say is, yeah, of course, but no, I, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. It's also, <laughs> NAM is massive, but the drum side of NAM is not massive, so we will all bump into each other at some point in time. It's just a big you know, loop, so yeah. you end up seeing each other, and you talk as much as you can, and then right when you start talking, like a troop of guys or gals goes over to the Dixon booth and just starts ripping chops, <laughs> and you can't talk anymore, and then you move over Why you got to pick on snack. Dixon? They're in the quiet area. <laughs> I'm not picking on Dick. It's just always some random. You know what it is? It's always a Dixon kit that was supplied for someone to show off their new head or their new symbol or their new drum wallet or something. Where it's just like, it's always a Dixon kit. I don't get it. I think your memory is misleading you there. (laughs) They're in the quiet area. They're like tucked behind like guitars. Fine. (laughs) Fine. World Max. There's always like there's a, there's always some booth. It used to be the Soul Tone booth. Everyone would gather at the Soul Tone yeah, booth Soul and Tone just go booth. bananas. A uh, and F has been pretty guilty of being yeah insanely for loud. sure um, for sure. Who else? Let's go ahead and call them all out. Who's been <laughs> well? Sabian the had loudest the guys hammering actually hammering cymbals all day. That, <laughs> that was, was shockingly piercing. <laughs> yeah, you could hear that over in the Roland booth, a half a mile away. I, yeah, I'd say. You got Soul Tone. Um, you know what's funny though is who's um, is it? Uh, there's Istanbul and then Istanbul Agop, right? There's Istanbul Mehmet, Istanbul Agop. Uh, okay, Istanbul <laughs> Mehmet. That was the one booth that there. It was almost like security guards of don't even think about. Like we don't even have a kit. <laughs> you can look at our symbols, but we make art, and you're not throwing chops around here. So um, now. 
last year was the first year that they moved the drum area to a new part of the oh, place, true. right? Were you not there so, last year? I wasn't there last year. Yeah, everything's in Hall C, I think. You know, it didn't okay. it didn't feel any different, <laughs> honestly. Okay. okay. <laughs> well, I'm sure it'll be fun, and we look forward to Bring seeing you guys. We, for sure. We, yeah, we won't be able to do a podcast from Nam just because of the chaos, and both um, Mike and my schedule are kind of crazy already. So we will do a podcast next week. We'll just do it earlier in the week before we leave for Nam. Maybe we'll make some Nam predictions, which is, hey, drums. Drum companies keep making drums, and <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Um, okay, so a couple things to get to before we start in on our educational topic, which I'm really excited about. You and I are going to discuss the Herta or the Herta, depending on how you choose to spell it. Uh, but first thing is, so I've got the UK Drum Show 2020 coming up in quite a while, mm-hmm. but the reason why I want to mention it now, it's in September, but... They've allowed me to host my own room this year, which is called the Educational Room, or the Education Room, and it's going to be me, Anna Canillis, and Eddie Thrower. And the whole point of this is it's a 45-minute masterclass from the artists that were on the main stage, so it's not like a junior room. These are All three of us are on the main stage, and then this is, okay, let's get into the things that obviously would have been too, too personal or too deep to get into in a drum festival setting. So mm-hmm. if you have some serious questions. Now, we are going to be teaching a master class that already has titles and everything, but it's also a place to go deeper. Like, everything you just saw on the main stage, what went into that? What is Eddie's mindset when he's creating parts? What is Annika's mindset? Uh, I'm going to be teaching two classes, two different classes. On day one, I'm going to be teaching from the page to the gig, uh, just diving deep into how do you practice in a way that allows you to take the stuff you're practicing and actually use it in the moment. So I'm just using the gig as a word for the moment, right. whatever that is for you. How do you do that? And then I think on day two, if they'll let me, I'm still trying to work it out with them. And if we can make it work tech wise, I want to do a whole masterclass. I've never done a live one on how to make better videos for drummers. Oh, interesting. How would you bring do all that my with gear and everything and stuff? Yeah. Bring my gear, plug in my laptop, show them, how to get specific angles, show them how to speak to a camera, how to distance yourself properly from the camera. So still working on it. Um, but so the reason why I'm bringing this up is there's only 150 spots. And I, I don't think what people, most people know is that those spots are free, but you do have to register them and they're free if you have a ticket. So as long as you have a general admission ticket for one day or for both days, then you can attend these classes for free. So you need to go to theukdrumshow.com and then click on tickets and then you can then register your passes. So like I said, Annika has a Saturday class and a Sunday class. Same with Eddie, same with me. And there's 150 seats per class. So get over there now and get that done if you're planning on going to that show. Uh, Second thing I want to mention is I think we all have seen enough news, no matter how much you ignore the news, to know what's going on in Australia. And it's just a terrible thing. I think, unfortunately, we as human beings deal with one or more of these per year of just mass tragedies that we can't quite comprehend We don't know how to do anything about it. We feel like if we can't solve it on our own, then we just don't know where to start. Um, And I just want to say one thing is just do anything. Anything at all is good, honestly. Um, And I will say this. Money is kind of best. And the reason why I say that is food, by the time it gets there, it can go bad. Um, It it might not be what's needed. Maybe they have more than enough food, but they need a blanket. So it's hard to guess what they need. So uh, I was planning this year in 2020 
on doing something that I don't think I've ever seen a YouTuber do, which is I was just going to publicly announce I am going to stop all YouTube ads. I'm going to take myself out of my YouTube revenue mm. and to make it a better in, a better learning experience for my students. Or f- even though they're free, right. I still I still feel like okay, well, you get that intro ad and then the banner ads pop up and it's just kind of annoying and it interrupts the educational flow. So I was going to give up that money 100% to say it's over. So instead what I'm going to do is all of my Google revenues, 100% of my Google revenues or YouTube revenues this from 2020 will go towards um, what's going on in Australia. So the first batch, first few months will be going just straight to the Red Cross. But then I'll be talking to Brody Simpson and uh, Stan Bicknell, just the only two guys I know in Australia, and be like, okay, what is the Red Cross still the best way to go? Mm -hmm. Because what's going to happen is in a month from now, no one in America will be reminded of this at all, but it's going to take them years and years to rebuild what's happening there. So for uh, every month for a year, I'll just send 100% of my YouTube revenue to that, and then I'll keep people posted on where it's going and what's the best place to put your money, um, depending on you know what would help help the most. Very cool. Very, very cool. So the only reason I'm mentioning that is... Just know that when you're sitting through a lame ad on my YouTube videos, you're actually helping out Australia. There you so go. The, I never even thought to ask this question. Do you have to watch the whole ad in order for you to get the nope. revenue? So it doesn't nope. matter. It's the same. No. Skip it. It's just the same, and it's, it's, it's not quite as simple of an algorithm as views. A lot of it comes down to how big your channel is. So um, – I don't know what my numbers are, but I think I have about 170,000 subscribers on YouTube. Uh, I've got about 12 million views. So, um, you know, every month it it just depends on how many videos I'm uploading. But YouTube is going to be my main focus of 2020 as far as social media goes. So that revenue will go up more than it even has been in the last few years. And and like I said, I mean, really, it's not costing me anything because I was planning on taking out that revenue because it's annoying, mm-hmm. but if it's annoying and it's for a purpose and the, our listeners know what that purpose is, I think it makes it tolerable. And yes, you are more than welcome to skip the ad. I'll still get that revenue. <laughs> okay. That revenue will still go to Australia. Because I am like, <laughs> I click a million times waiting for that skip skip ad. Button. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then accidentally you actually clicked the yeah. opt-in. You're like, no, no, no. <laughs> I don't want those toe socks, whatever those weird, <laughs> creepy things are. I'm gigging in shoes. All right, so let's get into some... Uh, you don't wear those toe sock jobbies when you gig, do you? Don't ever say toe socks ever again. Just take... Well, I don't, don't what ever, are they called? I don't, I don't care. Weird... It's done. Don't ever mention it ever again. <laughs> uh, I don't know what they're called. I don't own them. But they're they're creepy, man. I don't want to know. Let's move it on. Let's talk about the hair t- <laughs> We will, but do you gig in shoes, yes or no? I need to know. Of course. Of course, right? Yeah, I, I, mean, I can't. Of course, I, I mean I practice in shoes, so I don't. Uh, I, there was a discussion on the Mike's Lessons family page where people were talking about playing barefoot, and I was like, "Hey, hey, keep when you're at camp, keep your shoes on, man." I mean, yeah, just do whatever you want to do, but I don't want to see you walk around a festival in bare feet and then hopping oh, on a back you know, backline kit that I'm going to be playing or whatever. I don't know. It's just kind of yeah. weird. <laughs> shoes, man, okay. wear your damn shoes. shoes. <laughs> so. Just so you don't freak out, Carter, Mike plays your kit with shoes. Mike plays the Lion King kit with shoes. Everything is fine. Let's get into the Herta. So if you guys don't know what a Herta is, also sometimes spelled Herta. How did you learn it? Herta or Herta? 
uh, well, I mean, I heard Herta, Herta, Blerta. <laughs> I mean, it was like every possible version of of a stupid rudiment name. <laughs> Single stroke four is, I think, what it should be, or something like that. Yeah, know. I mean that's the really that's the rough. thing about it is it's it's really it's a rhythm because it's just single strokes the whole, whole time. Right. So the way I usually define the herta, uh, we'll just use that moving forward for the rest of this episode. <laughs> how do you spell it? The, this is the, the I spell it as H E R T A. That's how I've seen it the most in okay. drum set books. Okay. But I did what the first time it was introduced to me in a marching hybrid rudiment setting. It was actually spelled H A I R T A. Yes, herta. And I've seen it with a U as well, like hurt with an A at the end. Herta. You've got to be okay. That person has to be fired. <laughs> but blurta is also something that I've heard. That's not real. That's hybrid hybrid. You can't go hybrid squared rudiment. Okay, so what is a herta? I will play you a little bit of sound in just a second, but one of the ways that I explain it to my students, instead of tripping them up with 30-second notes and 16th notes, or maybe you play it as triplets, I can say, or I teach it as it's two notes of any speed followed by two notes of half that speed. Okay. Okay? Okay. So if this is my speed... Then it would be. So you could have two thirty seconds followed by two sixteenths, two sixteenths followed by two eighths, two eighths followed by two quarters. That would just be a slurta. <laughs> yeah, super, <laughs> super slow. It cease to be a rudiment and just a rhythm. Well, and that's I guess that's the, a discussion to have too because it is just a rhythm out, built out of single strokes. So what I wanted to show you guys today is first of all I just want you to get used to hearing it. Now I put the metronome in three four because this takes up I'm playing this as two thirty second notes followed by two sixteenth notes, so it takes up three sixteenth notes. One two three one two three one two three. So I'm playing it in three four, and here it is against a click. Okay, now right off the bat, not the most exciting rudiment. Mm, no, I mean, it, it just sounds like a, a rhythm. It's all it is. <laughs> yeah. It is a rhythm. It's a syncopated rhythm. It is, uh, <laughs> it's single strokes that are not evenly spaced, so it is a syncopated rhythm. Right. Okay, so then here's where the discussion comes in, and this is actually why I wanted to talk about this with you. Okay. I've heard it two different ways on the drum set. And then when you and I were talking before the podcast actually started, you showed me a third way that you have played it. Mm -hmm. So, But the two most common ways you would hear it is when you accent the first two 30-second notes. So da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. So let's listen to that real quick. So now it starts to take some shape because we start to bring in a polyrhythm. With those accents there, we start to feel that four over three polyrhythm. One E and a two E and a three E and a one mm-hmm. E, a two E and a three E and a. So that, I can say for sure, when the Herta made its way to my drum set, it was that for a very long time. Interesting. Obviously orchestrated, but that was how I, that's, I was under the impression that that was the Herta. I think I learned it as triplets. That's, I was going to ask that because, especially with somebody that was so ingrained in jazz, 
you know, if your vocabulary was more shifted towards triplets, where mm-hmm. mine was obviously shifted towards straight sixteenths, then it works great as triplets as well. Yeah, I think that even in like marching band, I think it was we we kind of drilled it in with a triplet subdivision. Okay, and I don't know that we ever actually accented the first two notes. That's like a new version that I don't think I've ever done. Wow, and I think I I the the last place I can remember seeing this in notation was in Kim Plainfield's book. Okay. So he had he had like two full pages in his advanced concepts about Herta uh, groupings. So Herta 3, mm. Herta 4, Herta 5, and then he would just combine those. Mm. So like 3, 5, 3, 5. Right. Interesting. Um, it sounds three, like four, it's like three, Carter Beaufort language or Billy Cobham okay. language. Yeah. Now, for sure, Ants Marching, Carter Beaufort live would just hurt to his way down the thing at the end of the song. Dink, 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 right. for an hour. <laughs> and we were like, what is that? And so his two 30-second notes, right was on the ride with kick, left was on you know, a four inch rack tom or whatever <laughs> tiny thing he had. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then his two sixteenths were floor and snare. So, and that was definitely, I mean, that's me just out of high school going like, okay, what is that? And if I did that on a China, uh, you know, that's going to fit right into my rock style. This is great. So, now the the next time that the Herta and and I worked through those Kim Plainfield exercises like crazy, the next time it made its way to my consciousness where I was like, "What the hell is that?" is when I heard Travis Barker do it, and he was accenting the two sixteenth notes. Mm. So da 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 da. So let's give that a lesson. A listen, biscuits. <laughs> I get so excited about teaching. <laughs> Okay, so I have to, no matter what, my ear flips it around to where the accents become the downbeat. Like, oh, really? Like okay. it, uh, not the downbeat, but the accents become the beginning of the, the phrase. Thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Check it, check it, or that, 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 that. Okay, yeah, I could see that. And I just can't hear it. And same thing with like licks to start with a bass drum. I can't hear that as like the beginning of the phrase. Bass drum always ends a phrase for me. It's weird. I have a lot of friends that don't realize the pickup notes they play. And so they always teach the lick with the pickup notes. Like, ah, oh, it starts on the kick. And I'm like, no, 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 your kick doesn't count. That wasn't part of it. Oh, yeah. You yeah. started it the note after that on your right hand. And it's like, no, no, no. And I'm like, no, the kick, if you looped it, you wouldn't do that kick. You don't know that you do a pickup note to get your body ready for this. And so I could totally see that happening. Now, just to go on that point. Let's listen to it as a fill, and each time that I play it, I change it. So on fill one, I'm accenting the two thirty-second notes. I'm accenting the front of the herta, and then on fill two, I'm accenting the sixteenths, the back side of the herta. All right.
So when I hear you play it with the accents on the 32nd notes, it sounds like a drum lick. When I hear you play it with the accents on the 16th, it sounds like phrasing. So I would never play it with the accents on the 32nd notes and only play it with the accents on the 16th. Just because of the way it makes me feel it is more like you're phrasing rather than you're playing a, here's a lick, here's a lick, here's a lick. I totally agree. And when I, it's, it's funny, when I play it myself, like when I teach it, I teach it the first way because I feel like it's easier to understand. Mm-hmm. When I play it as a drummer slash artist, it's the second way. Um, and I'm, first of all, we should just recognize how massively versatile that thing is. When we started this little uh, segment and it was da 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 da, <laughs> you would never think like, wait, that's that thing that I've heard those fusion guys do all the time yeah. or whatever. And it totally is. And like I said, when I heard Carter, not Carter, when I heard Travis do it, it was in blink. He was going, and it was like, wait a minute. But he was doing the, and it was a really cool thing. And I just thought like, oh, that's cool. And then that had to be in the early 2000s when I heard that. And ever since then, my hertz have always been accenting the two sixteenths instead of the front side of it. So, um, when when you sent me this, the first thing I thought was, well, the way I usually play this is more thinking like a timbali player or something. So I accent all the lefts. So it makes it, it gives it this polyrhythmic phrasing with thirty second notes in the middle of it. Uh, right. Maybe we can we can drop in some audio of that. I'll I'll program it. <laughs> but I'm gonna do that. No, and I, I thought it was really cool. Absolutely. Like when I first heard that, um, I mean, I had to work it out for a second. But one thing you guys can do is just start playing this thing monotone and then just slowly bring down the volume of one of the hands and it becomes that thing you know yeah, it's and like I'm the trying to think like do it in eighth time. notes but they're displaced in a way yeah man that's tough Whew. I like that one I'm so happy that you're the only one that can see my face <laughs> as I'm learning this thing. And then it's like my eye starts twitching. And I mean, how, yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll drop in some programmed audio so we don't have to fumble through it. <laughs> What I'm always preaching at the end of my educational videos, especially on YouTube, when I say I give you the blueprint, but you got to build the house, what do you think I'm talking about? I'm talking about this. Mike and I both have access to this syncopated rhythm called the Herta that goes da 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 da. But the the stamp that we put on it through texture and through dynamics and through approach, that's what allows us to be individual and allows us to be artists. And that's what we want for you is once. Anytime you learn something that I've taught or that Mike's taught or that your private drum teacher has taught, the moment you've actually learned what they've taught you, that's actually the moment that the work begins. Learning it is the easy part. Mm -hmm. Figuring out how are you not going to just walk around replicating your drum teacher's parts, that's the hard part. And that's, I think, when you look at the history of this podcast and the drummers we've covered and the people that – Uh, get pointed out for Mike and I using their names way too often. It's because the stamp they've put on our instrument. It's not because of how good they are. Like you being good at the drums means you had free time. You being original (laughs) at the drums. That's, that's the kind of stuff that impresses me because I've played this instrument my whole life. And there's only a few things I can point to where I go. That's a me thing. I I haven't heard anyone else do that. Mm. When I hear someone that embodies that as a player, even though I can trace it back to someone, they still put their stamp on it. You know I mean? 
it's funny when you talk to Carter or Mark, our two most mentioned friends on this podcast, when you talk to them about their influences, it's like, yeah, I can hear that you're obsessed with Tony, but I don't hear Tony in your playing. Yeah, like, the obvious stuff is not there. Yeah, it's more of a conceptual totally. thing. And uh, speaking of yeah. which, our our shared influence, Matt Chamberlain, sent me a link to his new record that's coming out in a couple of weeks. Oh, and you know the the file. There's no title. There's no nothing on nothing on it. I don't even know if he's playing drums or what. But as soon as I hit play on the first track, I'm like, that's Matt Chamberlain. Like within really? two seconds of the drums making a sound i'm like that's the ultimate goal and i even told him that he's like yeah cool i don't know if that's good or bad but <laughs> you know like, <laughs> Man. like i could identify your plane in two seconds that's the dream that is, that is the dream so hopefully this gave you guys a little insight on the herta and the rudiment uh, i do have a new youtube video on it with going the phrasing is herta three herta four herta three herta four two so it's kind of like a feeling it is sevens uh one, two, there's no way I could count. Four, <laughs> one, two, three. Nope, not going to happen. <laughs> I was like, come on, don't do it live. But anyways, if you want to check that out, I don't count in it, but I do have a big metronome that goes bloop, bloop, and you can check that out. All right, let's get, oh, we wanted to mention uh, somebody that we lost, sad thing, but yes. somebody that had a massive impact on the industry and created a product that eventually became an entire industry on its own. Um so yes. this is the man that invented Moon Gel, yeah, right? Yeah, so most um, within the past week or so, we lost um, Thomas Rogers, who was he's the creator of Artom the Company, which if you use Moon Gel or if you had a Moon Gel practice pad or if you got the Black Hole practice pad system, he created all of that stuff. So I think we can acknowledge that he had a major impact on our drum sounds <laughs> oh <my gosh. laughs> over the years. Um, yeah, so Man. our thoughts are with the extended Artom family. I did ask them to, if they could, send me one of the pads so I could kind of give, yeah. pay tribute to him in a different way by actually using his pad for a while and, and kind of sharing now, my have thoughts you, on it. I used to own one of those. Did you ever own one? I didn't they own no one. Joke. I was in, when I was in Allstate Orchestra, maybe my sophomore year, the, the first chair kid had one. So I was I was third chair, so I played cymbals, and we were playing Shostakovich. So I literally hit instruments ten minutes in eight hours. Um, right. So I just sat in the back of the room, just learning. I learned tornado, the rudimental solo, on one of those pads. It nice. Was, it's like forever ingrained in my that that two day window when I like did nothing but shed rudimental drumming <laughs> on a yeah, moon yeah, yeah. practice pad, and it's silent, so no one could hear me back there just hammering yeah. out double stroke rolls for like eight hours straight. Man, I mean that when I was a drum shop employee at Drum Guitar City, that was the pad that was always on the counter for us to play because oh, wow. yeah. one, it, it was the quietest one, but it was also just like how fast your paradiddles on the moon gel pad. You know, I was like, oh god, not the moon gel pad. I mean, you think the reflex pad is tough? That moon gel pad, it's got like specific gravitons in it that only gravitate with with wood and it just it just pulls your stick down it's out of control yeah apparently they're they're working on a 14 inch version i think that goes just sits on top of your snare drum um so that oh that's awesome check that out that's still in production but yeah definitely thoughts with everyone over our tom for the passing of thomas rogers great pioneer in our industry next time you see a kit with some blue sticky dampening on it you can thank thomas rogers for that man you know, I, I got to say, between Moon Gel, if I, if I can think about like the two products that spawned 
an, an entire industry to change towards that. It's funny. It would be when I think it was who was it? Pure cushion. Who came out with the rims mount system? The original Gogger. Oh, okay, yep. so that yep. Changed the game. That changed everything because everyone needed more resonance. And yep. then Moon Gel, which caused everybody <laughs> to shut their drums up because they wouldn't stop ringing. Everyone had too much resonance. <laughs> so true. I wonder if they were mortal enemies. <laughs> right? <laughs> Less ring. More ring. More ring All so right. we can control it. <laughs> yeah. Hey, that's a great idea. You keep making those, and then I'll make the product that shuts it up. Fantastic. Ah, maybe they are All right. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> we just discovered something. Once again, we want to thank Dream Symbols for sponsoring this episode and go check out their new Dark Matter Eclipse series, which is based on the 21-inch Dark Matter Eclipse ride, which came out in 2017, which is a half-lathe ride symbol, which has an inner portion that's not lathe, and then the outer portion is lathe, so you get two very distinct playing surfaces, the unlathe bell and center area gives you more articulate and clear sound you get a washier more complex sound when you move out to the outer edge where the lathing is so check them out there's a 23 inch ride 19 and 17 inch crash there's also 15 inch hi-hats as well as the original 21 inch ride on their instagram page youtube facebook they just put up a demo by their artist phil hawkins so he is in a studio playing these cymbals on some tunes so you can hear them in action he also explains a little bit about the sound um within within the demo so again thanks dream for for sponsoring the episode go check out the dark matter eclipse series all right let's talk about our featured artist uh this is Daryl Howell is the archetype of a drummer that I think needs to be featured way more often. And that is the drummers that are constantly gigging and they're almost like concert drummers. They're always on tour. Yeah. They're always playing these insanely tough arrangements. They're usually having to, I mean, if you think about what Daryl did in the Maxwell chair, all of a sudden it's like, wait, who did the album? Chris Dave. Great. Right. Looking forward to copying those parts. (laughs) And yet he still does it, does his job. But I think maybe when you're new to the drum industry or maybe the music industry in general, you wonder, well, why doesn't that drummer that did the album just go on the tour? These are different breeds of drummers. A touring drummer is one, has showmanship, has an aura about them. They can take direction really well. Yeah, that's the the important tool. Yep, the professionalism. in the moment, they play for the music, and he is just, like I said, he's just the prototypical version of that. And hearing his drumming, there's there's something about a touring drummer where you can just hear, even when they're by themselves playing, that touring drummer is still in them. And same with session drummers and same mm-hmm. with teachers. You can hear that. Um, but yeah, I mean, God, he's been with Nicki Minaj, Maxwell. Um, I mean, it's out of control. Yeah, he. the story is in the February issue, if you haven't gotten it yet. So he's... He's basically t- the, the whole interview is kind of about well, how do you do this? How do you be a you know a, a top touring drummer for three very high profile, very demanding type gigs? And I kind of came away from it with the overriding theme was he, he's just so so professional, so over prepared, um, so detail oriented, and able to just deal with the fact. He even says at some point 
like they prepared a whole set for Nicki Minaj and then she can come into rehearsal and say, we're not going to do any of that. Here's 30 more songs we're going to do. And the show might be Whoa. tomorrow. You know, it's like, wow. Like in, and he says, Maxwell, same thing. He'll be kind of legendary for showing up to rehearsal with a new song and we've got to learn it and play it. Um, so that, that level of pressure, I think is what removes, separates the men from the boys, the girls from the women in this type of, Totally. I mean, that's what I'm saying is just because you were able to come up with the parts and and track the parts, it doesn't mean that you could handle this world. It's a different world. And the friends that I have, I have one student in particular that I can definitely call a peer now, but his name's Tyler Zarzika, and he's toured with just about every young pop artist in the world by now. And he's just a touring drummer. He could easily be a session drummer, but it's not where he's going to excel the most. He excels at being told what to do and doing it really well and looking good while doing it and being 100% professional. And just like you can get from reading this article with Daryl, not adding drama. Yeah, Be the cream in the coffee. When the situation gets caffeinated, calm it down. I mean, there's there's um, something to be said about the fact that he's pretty much anonymous. Like, It's right. not like he's showing up on, on every major drum festival and stuff. He, it's like, know your role, be a team player, be professional. And he came up uh, learning from Teddy Campbell, who I think kind of set wow. the the benchmark, the archetype for this. Yeah. Like, if you want a yeah. guy who can do the gig and there's going to be no drama and it's going to be amazing, Teddy Campbell. And then everyone who kind of came under his his wing. Yep. I like, too, that he talks about self-critiquing and never being... I mean, he's at a level where if you're playing with Maxwell, you're playing with one of the most artistic R&B artists there, there is in the world. Um, and then if you're playing with Nicki Minaj, you're playing with one of the most popular, boisterous artists in the world. And for him to be getting off of the gig with Maxwell and saying that within two hours he has the full yeah. set in Dropbox and that's what he listens to. He just finished doing it, and now on the bus ride to the next city, he's just listening and critiquing yeah. too much hi-hat, not enough snare, put in some more kick. Uh, you rushed, you dragged. It's like, well, that's that's the thing is I think when you're dealing with somebody at this level, they don't know that they're at this level because they're still worried about how could it be better. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's almost like the irony of you make it, but you make it because you're so unable to be satisfied with with your own abilities so you're always pushing you're never you're never just sitting back like man that was a great show past the the grand marnier or whatever you know (laughs) past the the fritos that was a hell of a show god he even says he says i've got a grading scale when there's little things that to the band don't sound like i messed up but i know that i missed i listen back and correct my mistakes so the next so the next night i don't make that same mistake it's very much like a professional athlete kind of mentality to me yeah like fix if you make one bad pass like you know you better believe a quarterback aaron Rodgers, knows every pass he made in the game and he knows which ones are good which ones are bad you know lebron james can replay the entire game in his head on the way home and he knows that i mean isn't that crazy when you listen to say tiger woods give a speech after a round and He's like, well, on six, it was a putt for seven feet, but it was breaking. And you're like, how do you remember that? Right. It was 11 hours ago. <laughs> or they're like, well, in the 92 uh, you know, championship, you're like, how do you remember that? But I do think that if, if our industry was a little bit different financially, I don't think it would be that weird for us to see drummers and bass players out on the road with their coach with somebody that could stand back and give them a little help, you know, but I do think that what 
if you think about Tom Brady on Monday morning after a win, what's he doing? He's watching film on himself with his coaches to find out what he could have done better, what he missed. And the fact that he's doing this on his own, getting on the bus, Daryl sits down, puts in his in-ears or his headphones and just says, okay, I'm going to listen to, I just finished playing a two-hour show. Now I'm going to listen to all two yeah, hours because I know it can be, yeah. <laughs> not know, from any kind of ego level. <laughs> I was going to say, that's different than you and I sitting down and being like, Daryl, get it. <laughs> like that's, that's like, okay, now it's time to critique. Um, and I think more of us should be doing that. It's pretty awesome. You want to put in a little audio of some of his uh, yeah, some of the things that people can hear from him on Instagram? Yeah, definitely follow his Instagram page. His handle is uh, D-L-E-M-A-R Music. So D-L-E-M-A-R Music. You can probably find him, Daryl Lil Man Howell. But he's got a bunch of cool clips on there. We're going to drop in one here. Now it is time to get into some candy. We've got some new symbols to review from Sabian. These are the complex symbols. Yes, it's a subdivision of the HHX series that they have called complex, um, which I think it essentially it means they just hammered it a little bit more. The bells are hammered. I don't know if that's standard on any other um, symbol in the HHX line. Um, so yeah, there's just more note, like noticeable hammering, more complexity. The more I kind of learn mm. about how symbols are made, it's it's really fascinating. Like you can only hammer some a symbol so far before it becomes a trash can, but if you don't hammer it enough, it's just like ear bleeding. So there's like these wow. these little pockets of of how much hammering how and you can't hammer the same spot twice. So anyway, they oh really wow okay. So, so I think they take like an HHX symbol and then do some extra hammering, hammer down the bell some, which kind of gets rid of some of the chiminess hammer down the bow a little bit more, which makes it more flexible. Um, Man. Sabian, I'm going to give you, and, and Meinl, Zildjian, anyone else, you're more than welcome to take this, but as a customer, we don't really know. We just assume they show up like this. It'd be awesome to hear a symbol as a blank, then an hour into mm-hmm. the hammering, then a little bit more hammering, and just hear the evolution of the symbol as it's being made to, like, when does it become what it is, you know? Yeah. Um, because we we see blanks on Instagram or something, and then we see the finished result. Yeah, and we see like some slow mo footage of somebody hammering it. But I'd love to hear, like, oh wow, that really did sound quite terrible yeah. when it started, and, and you and turned it into once that. you go so far, it's trash. That's the it's like it's like wow. being a sculptor. You know, once you remove too much, it's gone. You can't you can't put it back. So what did you have a chance to test with these? So I tested the whole series, but here we're going to focus okay. on just the crashes. So they sent me the full range of their new complex crashes as well as comparable regular HHX thin crashes. So in this clip we're going to drop in, the first crash you hear is going to be the, the regular thin and then the second crash is going to be the complex version. It goes 16, 18, and 20. Um, so we can kind of compare and then discuss how big of or how little of a difference we hear and then I can discuss what I felt which obviously doesn't translate to audio but let's drop it in. Awesome. Let's check it out. Shh. 
Wow, that's quite fascinating. And it gives you a great example of how nuanced companies have gotten. Because mm-hmm. if you didn't have one to compare them to, it could just be called 18-inch expensive crash. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, they both sound like really good expensive crashes. <laughs> but when you put them like AB like that, you can actually hear how much that extra hammering adds to the trashiness yeah. and brings the pitch down just a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. So I kind of felt like, yeah. I mean, having ones of either of these 16s, it would have been cool. There's your 16-inch crash. Um, I don't know how often you would have both of these up to really hear it. The big thing, which doesn't translate to recording, was I could really feel it. It was a much softer symbol, and it also was a much quieter symbol. Oh, was it? Okay. Quieter in maybe not in a decibel way, but in a frequency way. Like the thin had some like projection that would cut through a mix, whereas the complex had you know a lot of that high end stuff was gone, so it just felt more sure. like controlled. Yeah, um, it would blend a little bit more. Yeah, so you know, I, I gotta say, when you did the two uh, sixteen and sixteen, I would choose one or the other mm-hmm. depending on the project. But when you did the two eighteens. I actually thought those two crashes complement each other really well. Yeah. Yep. I felt like the bigger the symbol, the more the the difference between these two became. Like the 20, there's even a 22. They didn't send me a 22-inch thin to compare it. But the 22, it's like, okay, that's that's its own universe. That's its own thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I felt like the, the 16s, they just sound like 16-inch crashes, really. The 18s, I could really start to hear some difference, more saturation coming from the complex. And then the 20, I really felt like now you're getting a little bit extra trashiness that that was more noticeable. Yeah. Um, I think that's uh, the trashiness is definitely what I'm hearing out of that, which is not something that you normally associate the HHX line with. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's not like so trashy where you're like, oh, that's a trashy crash. It's no, no, no. no. It's just, I mean, it's kind of like when, when Peisty goes a little bit trashy, you're like, what? Yeah. Okay. Okay. (laughs) I see what you're doing there. Uh, So yeah, I, I mean, I, I could definitely see either uh, the 18 or the 20 complex. I could see either of those on your kit as mm-hmm. your personal setup. Yeah, yeah, they tend. That's the kind of the sound for a crash. I want a crash that sounds like a crash, but it has some like saturation that you don't get from like a regular factory made crash. So yep. they kind of supplied that for me. The 18s and the 18 and the 20 in particular, I, I would have been like, okay, put those two up. I can do a session, and having that little bit of control would help with recording i wouldn't have to worry about the high frequencies getting too piercing Boom. but you know i think calling them complex they're not jazz symbols i mean you could use them in a jazz setting but they're not like they're not one-dimensional like only for jazz or or like super specialized tones they just they still yeah. sound like crashes it um, was probably just that someone at sabian went into the hammering dude and was like hey can you take our normal 18 hammer it more but don't hammer it too much and he was like why do you make this so complex and they were like perfect we're out of here i didn't know where you were going with that well done well <laughs> sir done dad joke completed <laughs> all right so uh we will get to more fun stuff next week but for now it is time to get to your listener questions all right let's start with an audio question shall we sure we've got one from todd mitchell here hi mike and mike this is todd mitchell from ventura california Thank you very much for what you guys do with the podcast. Really enjoy it. Really appreciate the time you take out to do this every week for us. And hope you guys are off to a fantastic 2020. Uh, my question is regarding playing ahead and behind the beat. Um, it seems a bit more straightforward when you 
are playing to a click, uh, referencing some sort of uh, metronome. But uh, I'm a bit curious in general about how you implement that in free time. But more specifically, I'm also interested in knowing if when you are playing ahead or behind the beat, if you're introducing a flam when you're playing the snare or the kick relative to your hi-hat or ride. Uh, is playing behind the beat mean you move both notes ahead or behind? Or, or pardon me, both instruments? Or are you moving only one and uh, keeping the main timekeeper steady? Uh, very interested in the answer to that question, and thank you very much for your time. Great and massively common question, Todd. Uh, I think as a teacher, as soon as this became a thing, which, by the way, was not a thing for a very long time. <laughs> most of my teaching career, this was not a thing at all. Then the D'Angelo album came out, and then somebody started coining the phrase behind the beat, and, and then all of a sudden, everyone wanted to know it. Uh, I can tell you this. It's very rare that I hear somebody be able to do this that doesn't listen to the music that involves this. Mm-hmm. The people that listen to the music that involves this, it's not playing behind the beat. It's playing the proper feel for the song. Yeah. Um, it just is what it is, right? And so if you're, if you're making it mechanical, you've already lost the battle. Yes, I think that is the, the paradox of it. You, as soon as you start asking too many intellectual questions about it, you make you make it impossible to actually answer it. I think you have. to... I would know right away. Oh, you're trying to make your snare later than your hi hat. Yeah, you have to. Just, you clearly have never listened to this yep, music. Play along to whatever you think is doing it, and then make your drumming right. do that. Would be the way I would practice it. I don't think I've ever consciously. You know, there was a gig recently with a bass player that I that I have a connection with, so I know. We're gonna we're gonna be together. Nothing's gonna you know. He's not gonna accuse me right. of speeding up or slowing down. Like we're we're locked. So whenever we play like a blues shuffle, that's the only time when I'm consciously thinking make the snare drum just a little sloppy, which yeah. translates into hitting behind the ride cymbal a little bit, a flam, which is really you fattening up the sound yes. rather than trying to create some D'Angelo feel. Yeah, I'm not thinking about the technique. I'm just thinking about I want the snare drum to just be the very last thing that i play yeah um and and yeah i think um yeah and so it's it's a tough thing because you sometimes you want to steer people like hey just play in time that will work so much better for you for the rest of your life (laughs) than than wasting your time trying to get one limb out of time and uh, like i said i mean the people that do it where i'm like oh man that's so cool so how did you learn how to do that no one's ever said, oh, I practiced it. They're like, I don't know, I just play longer records. Yeah. So yeah. to them, they're not playing behind the beat, they're playing the proper feel for the music they listen to. So I think that that's... And, and honestly, Todd, I'll just say this because I've had you at camp and so we're friends. You're part of the Mike Sussman's family. I eventually had to give up on having a good jazz feel if I wasn't going to be willing to listen to jazz music. Mm-hmm. And I just had to eventually be like, fine, I can do all the independence work in the world, but no one will ever say like killer jazz feel because I don't listen to the music. So unless I'm willing to go that route and not for if you're doing it for work, it's all you've already failed again. You actually have to like it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I can um, say from experience, not playing along to jazz records, having and I had no idea how far on top of the beat you actually have to be for that to work. Like playing along to a Tony Williams track from uh, seven steps to heaven i mean if you're only used to playing like mid-tempo funk and then you're like oh yeah, yeah i'm gonna play some fast jazz i guarantee you're gonna be at least a 64th note behind him he's sitting so far on top but when you listen to the record you're like that's perfectly 
awesome. There's, he doesn't feel like he's rushing or pushing, but he is right. sitting really, really far ahead. Same thing with Max Roach. So they, I think that was the revelation for me. Like, okay, I can I can intellectualize it, but until you sit down and actually play with it and and yeah. play with someone that you know has the the traits that you want to be able to do, there's going to be a huge uh, gap between where you think it is and where it actually is. Like yeah. playing Long Toes Up on record, you're going to probably rush because Bonham right. slows down <laughs> a lot of right. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Play along to, to a live police record, and you're going to be... Yeah, you got to rush. Yeah. Better get your matcha on. Get that energy going. <laughs> All right, next question. Oh, yeah, we have questions. Um, okay. <laughs> Did we answer Todd's question? I feel like we just tell him it's a stupid question. That's a terrible way to answer it, but... No, no. I mean, I think that that's, that's the, the answer that people need to hear is when it comes to something that stylistically based, it's not going to work out if you try to intellectualize it. You have to listen to the music. It is an art form for a reason. And the more you do it, I promise the more it'll naturally happen rather than you, you know, if you want to work on anything, work on your drum set independence mm-hmm. so that when your brain or your heart, I should say, tells you what to do, your body can follow it. But I can I can totally hear when somebody in their drum clinic is like, now I'm going to do that thing. <laughs> like, dude, stop! It makes my teeth stop. hurt thinking about it. Totally right. I'm like, oh god. Okay, you're next, not meant to do that <laughs> thing. Next question from Greg. <laughs> my question is in regards to temperature. I keep my drums up in a finished room above my detached garage. There is heat. However, I live in upstate New York and it gets very cold. I set the thermostat to 45 degrees Fahrenheit when I'm not in there and turn it up when I play. Is there any risk here with damaging the gear? Uh, whether it's from 45 degrees being too cold or from the temperatures rising when I turn the heat on, I don't. I don't think that 45 is cold enough to be a, an issue. That would be my opinion. I live in California, dude. I mean, 45 I is still <laughs> above freezing. I think if your if your room is going down to like the teens and below, where where your drums could be yeah. freezing, that's probably a problem. I mean, obviously, the wood that your drums are made out of have gone through plenty of winters in their lifetime. So I would assume that's going to be okay. I would assume it would come down to the glue more than anything else. Yeah, and I think uh, I, that's why issue. plywood drums are, are so popular. I think if you have like a stave drum or a block shell drum, that might be more of an issue where the wood is still expanding and contracting with humidity and temperature. But I think a ply shell drum is pretty much locked. I mean, if anything, it's. I've just noticed this from driving with my kit um, through summers and through winters to different gigs and stuff. It, it's just a, a tuning thing. Sometimes my heads expand and contract, mm. and when I get my kit out of the out of my bags, all of a sudden I'm like, "There is no way that's where my rack tom was when I left the house today." <laughs> <laughs> it's all king or doo. I'm like, "No way!" My twelve sounds like that. So. Sometimes it's just retuning the heads, but I think you'd be fine. Um, and now I would say let that let that room warm up before you play for just a little while for your cymbals. I mean, having really cold cymbals, mm. I can only assume that's got to make them more brittle if you just start smashing on them. I mean, I know from my touring days when you'd get to like the outdoor gig at the ski resort. I was like, well, there's three broken cymbals today. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. At, here at Banff. Um, and so uh, just just break your crashes and get on with it. Uh, so, yeah, I would say let it warm up so that your cymbals uh, have a little more flex to them. But other than that, you should be fine. All right, we got one more here from Jesse. I'm thinking about purchasing, purchasing some brass hoops for my snare drum. I found chrome over brass, uh, clear over brass, or black painted brass. How much effect will the coating have on the sound, or will there even be a noticeable difference? 
first of all, I'm glad he's listening because we had recommended yeah. uh, Brass Hoops as a as a, a really nice number one upgrade. upgrade. Yeah, yeah. I've never a beat him. Um, I think maybe black painted might be the ones I would stay away from. Anything that's painted because it's it's going to be dampening the metal. I think chrome over brass isn't really affecting the vibration that much. And if it's raw brass, that's probably the ideal. But then you're going to deal with uh, just tarnish issues over over right. time. That'd be my my thoughts. I've not I beat totally these, agree. but I would stay away from anything painted because that's going to just deaden the the vibrations. Yeah, painted, powder coated. You're adding material to it, and um, the chrome over brass. I'm assuming, like you said, still has resonance because it's metal based. Yeah, but um, and I mean that that the corrosion, the patina. That's that's the sauce right there. <laughs> yeah, but not everybody likes that. <laughs> well, they're wrong. <laughs> Dip it in some water. Dip it in some vinegar. Uh, well, I, 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 yeah. Dip what in vinegar? Your, your drum hoops? <laughs> no, yeah. Dip your hoops in vinegar, set them out in the sun, let them patina. You're good to go. What? Do you do that? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. I don't No, not at all. I saw it on, on Fixer Upper. Chip was uh, throwing some vinegar on some, some bronze to get it to patina extra quick, so... Oh, interesting. All right. Yeah, don't yeah. do that. <laughs> don't do it. I, I I saw it on a TV show <laughs> out of Waco, Texas. So oh, don't do it. All goodness. right, guys. So thank you guys for sending in your questions. You can always send more MD info at moderndrummer.com. And you can send audio questions just like Todd did. That's our favorite because then we get to hear your voice. And it's uh, a good chance that we won't misunderstand your question if you are saying it out loud. All of your phones have a voice memo recorder. It's easy. Mm-hmm. driving around you're thinking about it right now when you have a question just email it mdinfo at moderndrummer.com with the audio and we will get to it as soon as possible it is now time for our picks of the week I will let you go first so <laughs> that I can look on the internet for my pick of the week <laughs> alright I've got one here I don't know if I, hopefully this is still available but um, I just re- rediscovered my uh, Steve Gadd in session DVD okay that I think it was originally a uh, maybe a DCI production, and then Warner Brothers bought the rights to it. So the DVD version is out via Warner Brothers. I'm sure you could find at least clips of it, or if not the whole thing on YouTube. Uh, But this is a classic drum video. It's 90 minutes of Steve Gadd in the studio playing with Will Lee and Eddie Gomez and um, who else? Richard T. Literally just playing, was it 10 different songs in different styles? Just to really? see Steve Gadd in his prime doing what he does, making music in the studio, and just how much he goes for the throat, no matter what. <laughs> if he's playing with brushes, if he's playing swing, if he's playing a slow blues, the dude is always going for the throat. So that's he's my archetype. Like there's the the polite studio drummer. Nah, I want the Steve Gadd like break stuff right. kind of yeah. <laughs> vibe for goes drums. in but always with a great sound and great touch and creativity i think there's a couple approaches to the yeah, there's a couple different approaches to a few of them so you get to hear them work you know work through the tune and how his playing evolves it's old i mean it's i don't know when it's from 80s but yeah 1985 maybe i'm not even sure wow but it's amazing steve gadd in session i've learned so much and stole so much from this video and I'm glad I rediscovered it. So that's my pick. Awesome. Very cool. All right. Well, my pick of the week is something that I always get comments on. And it's been quite a while now. And people, even though I have this gorgeous vintage kit, I'm just thinking about my most recent trip to L.A. I set up my kit in two different places at the Vic Firth offices and then at Larrabee Studios when I was recording with Victor and Mark. And both times 
even though I've got this great kit and cool symbols, people still comment on my clutch, my hi-hat clutch. Oh, yeah. Yo, what is that? (laughs) And so, first of all, it's been over two years, and I still have the drum key from Cherry Hill. Oh, wow. Still have it. I actually have two of them because I have the one that y'all faked me (laughs) out with. Um, But I, I actually have the the real one marked properly now so i know which one it is um but yeah so uh, after that he sent me a matching micro clutch so his micro clutches will fit you get to choose do you have a dw slash gibraltar hi-hat stand a tama a pearl or a yamaha mm. so he will make them for your hi-hat stand you can choose the finish and the finishes um, are either brushed brass so kind of gold looking but flat and antique blackened that's what i have and I think Carter might have one too. I think he just posted a picture of his. Mm-hmm. And so I've had the micro clutch now for about a year and a half and it's never left my kit. And you know how frustrating a bad clutch can be when you're constantly having to undo it in between every song yep. and having to readjust it. And I do not have that problem with this at all. So check out, uh, you can go to just cherryhillcustomdrums.com. And you can see the key of destiny. It's literally called the key of destiny now nice. on his website. <laughs> so you can see that there. That's the that's the drum key that I have had, even though it was stolen for a while because of <laughs> this podcast. But I've had it for a very long time. And uh, the micro clutch is my pick of the week. So definitely check it out. Sixty bucks, but it's it's the one thing that. Every time somebody sees my kit, they're like, what kind of clutch is that? And I'm like, really? Do you not see the 1964 Gretsch round badge sitting in front of you? Look at the bass drum head. Uh, so, so yeah. So, check out the micro clutch. All right. Alrighty. That concludes our episode. It is. So, we've got to go back to chaos of preparing for NAM here. So, again, Friday at NAM show at the Big Fat Snare Drum booth, 1 p.m. If you're there, please come hang out. We're going to be there checking all the new stuff they have drum battling we're going to be blazing some hurtas <laughs> oh my god we're going to do 40 bpm hurtas on big fat snare drums wait what what is is that is that jonathan's outro beat i hear it why, that is a dope groove why were you looking around your room because <laughs> i gotta sell it damn it i gotta sell it uh, you don't understand what it's like to be in character this is Jonathan Kazanave, I believe that's how he pronounces it. Kazanave. 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 Jonathan. Just, why don't you say it six more times the exact same way? Kazanave? No, Kazanave. Better known no, as if you go Instagram, it's at the Studio Drummer, YouTube at the Studio Drummer. This is his beat. He is using a late 70s Slingerland steel snare, which is the 5x14. Um, he is using the UAD EMT 140 plate reverb which is beautiful sounding. He's got a pair of trash hats that uh, I guess they were just some random things he found. Um, and he did the synth parts on with some Roland and Arturia gear. So check it out. This is a Tama Royal Star kit. Uh, this is Jonathan Cabanave, a.k.a. the studio drummer. That's it. See you next time. <laughs>